Happy day, one and all, and thank you for downloading the 86 Blast of Scoring at the Movies, the every other Thursday podcast about sports films. We'd like to apologize for spoiling Battle of the Sexes, but we're not going to do that. Watch the movie first, because we're going to spoil it. You should know that by now. I don't think too many movie podcasts actually tell people they're going to spoil the movie, but we always do. We're good that way. But basically every movie podcast does grossly yeah, spoil it. if not everyone. all, then certainly most. I'm the podcaster who happens to be a man, but who doesn't shave his legs. I have pretty good legs, so... They're naturally hairless. Leave them alone. Oh, they're quite hairy, but pretty good legs. Ryan Ellis. And here's the inveterate PED-taking gambler who will remove his jacket and take this ass-whooping seriously, Chris DiGregorio. Well, thank you, Ryan. I was wondering whether or not you would comment on my sponsorship and the sugar baby jacket that I wore in here. Was it Sugar Daddy? Sugar Daddy. Sugar Daddy. Because the actual candy. Candy, yeah. But listen, somebody comes up to me on my way here to the record and says 20 grand to wear this jacket throughout the recording. I wear the jacket. I I would, too. I'm only human. It's still summer and it's warm down here, but I'd wear it. It might hamper my performance during the recording, and you might just win this one, but I'm willing to accept that for a little of that sweet, sweet sugar daddy cheddar. You own a house and we're about to own one, so people should sympathize with the fact that we need the money. (laughs) All the help we can get. The hand sign means the taxes. (laughs) Well, you're reaching for that beer. Open it up. What do you got over there? Yet another in my manly line of drinks for these recordings. This is a... Grapefruit IPA pomegranate smash from Hops and Robbers. There we go. Hops and Robbers. Okay. Well, I've got some Crown Royal and Diet Pepsi tonight. The hat just blew off my head when you said that from surprise. You were so stunned. I was so stunned. Maybe once I live somewhere else, I'll mix it up once in a while. (laughs) It'll totally change your personality once you move Probably not. (laughs) I'll start drinking Kool-Aid again like when I was a kid. So before we get any further into Battle of the Sexes, we need to bring Runs, Hits, and Errors back about Whoa. The Waterboy. This has been a while. Mm-hmm. But there are three things I want to address that were fixable, if you will. We need to fix that right now. Right. 51st Dates, one of Sandler's better rom-coms, has only 45% of positive reviews on Rotten Tomatoes. We both thought it would be a fresh tomato, but that's not a fresh tomato. Only 45, too, wasn't even all that close. It's kind of shocking, actually. Also, Kate Beckinsale's name and click doesn't start with a V. That's a common Sandler thing. VV, in fact, generally, in a lot of his movies. I think at least three or four of his movies, the love interest is VV for initials, but she's Donna Newman. And the last thing is, I read in the past few days, just Googling this, that Henry Winkler has said he and Tom Hanks buried the hatchet about the Turner and Hooch thing. We talked about that a little yeah. bit as well. The comment that Winkler made in the early 90s when asked about this, because I guess they found out he got fired from Turner and Hooch, he said... Well, I got along with the dog. (laughs) So that's why people assume that there's a bit of a rivalry. And also when you Google that whole incident, Ron Howard comes up because he talked about it at some point in the last several years and said, I don't know why they're not friends. I like them both. They're both friends of mine. But apparently they buried the hatchet. Two of the nicest guys in Hollywood, you figure eventually will find a way to let bygones be bygones. Especially since Winkler had that career resurgence later in life where he's become this lovable, goofy character in a lot of movies. Mm -hmm. So... 
easier to forgive about a job when your career is going well versus if that was the turning point in Henry Winkler's career and he just went into a spiral afterwards. Different story. But I am happy to hear that they buried the hatchet. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, back to this movie. Borba Palova, as it was known in Serbia. I'm guessing one of those means battle and one of those means sexus. You don't have a literal translation from that? Just guessing. Okay, fair. Borba Palova. Maybe was, it's sex battle or something. That could be what it is too, yeah. Was released by Fox and it's on Disney Plus, yes. which is nice. They don't have The Hustler. I was looking for that last night out of curiosity. Haven't seen that in years. Want to watch The Hustler just for my own edification. That's a Fox product. Not on there, but they do have things like Battle of the Sexes. That's a Fox movie? Hustler is, Hustler, yeah. yeah. And this was... It would be interesting to see as the prequel to The Color of Money, mm-hmm. right? Which we covered yeah. way back when we started this podcast. So Battle of the Sexes came out in late September 2017. The reviews were good, but nobody went to see it. It just tanked. As for those reviews, 84% on Rotten Tomatoes. Very strong number. 7 out of 10 was the average. 317 reviews, so that's a hell of a good sample size. Only 71% of audiences that reviewed it, but then again, pretty solid. But it was 121st that year at the box office. We covered these two movies, I think both last year. One definitely was last year. Molly's Game was 85th. That was last year, last fall. I, Tanya, I think was last year, was 83rd. All female leads, incidentally, by the way. And all movies I would give a thumb up to. Especially yes. I, Tonya. That's my favorite of those three. One of my favorites of that year. But I did like Molly's Game. I also enjoyed this movie. Didn't love it, but did enjoy it. Your thoughts now. <laughs> all right. Hold on. I got to stretch before doing this. Fair enough. Uh, I'm realizing a few things as we go through. Maybe it's taking me too long, given that this is episode 86 of this podcast. Obviously, great movies, good movies I enjoy. We enjoy talking about those. Bad movies, truly bad movies, in the realm of Ready to Rumble, those don't bother me. When I finished watching Ready to Rumble, I wasn't upset about it because... Oh, I was. It's 90 minutes, it's a bad movie, it's purporting to be a bad comedy, that's what it's Mm -hmm. trying to be. But mediocrity? Mediocrity, and especially mediocrity in movies that are trying to be self-important about something. Okay, fair. This movie made me upset in a way that was very similar to how I felt with Mystery Alaska, where the movie is clearly trying to get me to feel a thing. You should feel triumphant that Billie Jean King just beat this ultra-chauvinist pig, Bobby Riggs. That should be a great feel-good moment. I felt nothing. I couldn't have cared less. I was so bored by this movie. I felt so disengaged from it that by the end of it, I was upset at how half-assed so many elements of this movie felt to me upset because this truly was an important moment in history. Unfortunately, it didn't have the long-standing impact 50 years later that we would hope as far as gender equality and pay equality go, but it was still a watershed moment in the women's liberation movement and in sport generally. And it just felt like it was done a horrible disservice when I watched it. What was its true purpose? It's called Battle of the Sexes. It should be focusing primarily on that match between Billie Jean King and Bobby Riggs. There's a lot of screen time of that match, too. There is, which is interesting that I felt as disengaged from it as it was, given how much screen time they gave to it. But this movie spent so much time trying to meander some sort of weird middle path of movie making that I didn't care at all. I didn't really understand Billie Jean King as a person. I didn't understand why they tried to humanize Bobby Riggs in one moment and then make him a chauvinist pig the next, and then are we supposed to root for him in his relationship with his son? Didn't understand why so much screen time was dedicated to Billie Jean King's relationship with the hairdresser. Ultimately, the only payoff to that is when she's prepping for the match and the hairdresser shows up and inspires her to victory or something, but... 
That was still like, called her hairdresser, not her friend or even her girlfriend. Exactly. And so much time is dedicated to that relationship, to the acceptance or lack thereof of anything other than a heterosexual relationship in sport and how that would affect Billie Jean King. But all of that is tangential to the true crux of this movie, which is a woman's liberation focused movie about the top female tennis player in the world beating a loudmouth former professional tennis player himself. And there's more to the movie that I kind of disagreed with than that, but I think you're getting the sense of where mm-hmm. I'm going with this. There's so many elements that this movie just throws in there along the way that just felt like constant distractions and it never gave the true crux of this movie time to breathe. <sighs> <laughs> Deep breath. I do get what you say about not really truly caring because I wasn't passionate about this story. I've seen it twice now. This is your first viewing. Yeah. I agree with her cause. Now, as a bit of a sidebar... Oh, yeah, let me be very clear here. I'm with the cause. I know who Billie Jean King was in reality, and I'm aware of this match, and I understand its significance, and that's part of why this movie upset me so much. So this is taking nothing away from Billie Jean King or what this was about to do. But the movie should have been better, should have been more important. exactly. But it thought it was too important. Okay, yeah. Well, as a bit of a sidebar here, Billie Jean King just happened to be on August 30th on Mark Maron's podcast, WTF. That's right. And that was the day I watched this film because I watched it on Sunday night. We're recording on a Wednesday night and I wake up and there's a podcast about this. So I better listen to this. And it wasn't like it wasn't edifying at all, but they focused on equality for all. So it's not just about how women and gay women, as it turns out, lesbians should have rights and the money they deserve. Because as the movie points out before any of that really becomes an issue, when she's just a married woman to a heterosexual guy, it's more about how she says early on, and she's not the only one, we're a proven draw. This isn't a matter of, oh, give us a chance. We've already had the chance and we've shown that people want to watch us play tennis. Why are you screwing us over? And Bill Pullman, not one of my favorite actors, and he's fine in the role, but it could have been a better role for somebody else, I think. I think so, yeah. Is such a sexist, and he doesn't even look at the numbers. It's like those people, I think it was the Sony people, that said, well, Denzel Washington and Will Smith can't sell in China because they're black. That's just empirically not true. Of course they've had failures. Everyone has failures, but those guys do sell in other parts of the world, not just here. But her podcast with Marin was mostly about the equality thing. I was hoping maybe she'd talk a little bit about Bobby Riggs because I was reading that they did become legitimate friends sometime after this match until he died in 1995. And she didn't mention that at all. The movie, well, this movie, I don't think came up once in that podcast. The idea of her facing Bobby Riggs did, but not even all that Mm -hmm. much. So it was fine, but I was hoping I would have more juice to tell you about what she said two days ago as we record this on a Wednesday. As far as some of the other problems with it, I can understand what you're saying there. I guess I was right down the line of, this is mediocre, it could be better, it should be better, but I do like what's going on. I think the actors do a pretty good job with this. But you're right about Carell, too, that he does have a bit of a push-pull thing. Maybe that's because he could have played the real super-duper jerk all the time, but A, I'm sure Bobby Riggs was a human being like everybody else. Everyone's a human being. I hate this, he's a monster thing about Trump or Hitler or whoever you want to say it about. They're still people. That's the problem. You call him a monster, we don't have to really deal with this. Well, same with Bobby Riggs, not as bad as those guys anyway, but he's Mm -hmm. still a person. He was just really laying on an act as a male chauvinist pig. So when you see him dealing with his wife, Elizabeth Shue, by the way, very small role, almost pointless, but at least the score factor, she still looks unbelievable. I do like a dash of Elizabeth Shue, modern day Elizabeth Shue. With this dorky dude. Yeah. I'm a big Steve Carell fan. I'm pretty sure everybody is a big Steve Carell fan. He's just good. And I don't place any of this at his feet, just like I don't place any of the failures in the movie, particularly at any actor's feet. Because while I feel like Carell and Stone were both good, 
and everybody else was at least fine. And I agree with you on Pullman. I feel like he was fine, but there wasn't a lot to that character anyway. So what do we need the Bobby Riggs character to be for the purposes of this movie? Because I agree with you. Everybody's a human being, but we have two hours. And as an audience member, this movie should make me feel very sympathetic to the plight of women generally in America. Did it do that? Well, kind of, but not as much as it should have. But it should make me feel that, certainly. It should make me feel sympathetic towards Billie Jean King more than anybody else. I yeah. should be desperately rooting for her. This is her movie way more than Bobby Riggs. Yes, absolutely it is. He almost feels like an add-on to this. We've got to make sure to get the bigger name like Steve Carell in this film, although Emma Stone, according to the IMDb, is top build. She should be. And she should be, because she's the bigger player in the film, and she's in more of the movie than yes. Carell is. But Carell's character... There is this weird thing with his wife and his kid and his other kid, yeah. his older son, and it does feel like, let's get Steve in the movie more. He was in their previous movie, the directors, Valerie Ferris and Jonathan Dayton. They're a married couple. Bev and I covered Little Miss Sunshine, where he is excellent, one of the big breakout roles for him, because he did The Office around the same time that came out. And everyone started realizing, hey, this Steve Carell guy who'd been on The Daily Show, and also 40-Year-Old Virgin was the same year as Little Miss Sunshine. No, sorry, the year before Little Miss Sunshine. So around that same time frame of a year, year and a half or so, two years, Carell busted out as a big name. But he was the comedy guy, although he is pretty tragic in Little Miss Sunshine. He literally tries to kill himself, so he's very tragic. And then since Foxcatcher, a movie we'll probably cover one day, whenever we find it on demand or DVD or something. Yeah. He's done mostly serious stuff since then, and he is very good in that film. He does his best in this movie, but he's left a little bit flailing by his directors that did so well by him in Little Miss Sunshine about 10 years before. I can't imagine it was Carell himself. I'm sure it was the screenplay, but I think the intention is probably exactly what you said. We need to get more Steve Carell, more of the male lead in this movie or whatever into this movie somehow. And it does the movie as a whole a huge disservice because ultimately it doesn't matter. His relationship with his wife doesn't matter. His relationship with his son, it doesn't matter. Either of the sons. Either of the sons, mm -hmm. exactly. Doesn't matter. His gambling problem, such as it is, doesn't really matter. To a degree, that does matter, because that's one reason why, why he wants to make this happen. First with Margaret okay. Court, and then with Billie Jean King. You can make the argument for that, fair enough. But he needs if, the money. But at the same time, that is another element of the movie I wish they had spent more time explaining to me, is what was Bobby Riggs' life pre-1972? Give me a montage. Explain to me who this guy is. I know he says at various points, I won the US Open, or I was this, but for a guy that was a tennis pro up to the 1940s, we meet him later in life. We're made to understand he has an office job with his wife's father's yeah, company. Yeah, job he does not want. Doesn't does not want. like. He's doing some sort of tennis hustling on the side, and he's in therapy for gambling addiction and all this kind of stuff. Ultimately, most of that fell flat for me because I didn't understand the underlying context of what his life was, especially since later on he has that whole speech at Gamblers Anonymous about, well, I don't have a gambling problem you guys have a gambling problem because you're not good at it. And if you were better, you'd be hustlers, not gamblers. And that's what I am. I'm a hustler. And frankly, I'm looking at his life and I'm thinking, okay, I get your wife doesn't like the gambling, but it doesn't look like it's really negatively impacting your life. A nice house. Nice house. You just want a bloody Rolls Royce and $1,200 off this guy in 1973 or whatever. If you can afford to gamble, gamble. Who cares? It's your choice. Like a Michael Jordan, he can afford to gamble. Right. So if gambling is a problem for this guy and it's drained his life's finances to the point where this is the impetus for him to want to make the 35 grand with Margaret Court and the 100 grand from the Billie Jean King match, that's fine. You're right. Then he needs the money rather than he wants it because he's addicted. You're right. He would need the money in that yeah. case. So show me why the gambling is a problem. I never got a sense of why it was a problem. Just that. I think the bigger like thing, it. actually, when we first meet him, 
is that he needs the spotlight. Maybe the key moment for him in the whole film is when he is watching all the attention the women are getting, which is still not probably enough commensurate to their talents even then. But Nixon calls Billie Jean King, and he's watching what, that. So what scene are we talking about? Really early on in the film. He's watching on TV that Billie Jean King has gotten a phone right. call from Richard Nixon right. about winning some big event. Maybe it was actually when they were going to split off and make their own league, division, whatever you want to call it. The WTA. Right, the WTA, Women's Tennis Association. I think association's the A, isn't it? I think so. And Sarah Silverman's character, Gladys Heldman, is real. I like Silverman a lot. She doesn't get to be funny in this movie. She's one of the funniest people on the planet. But she's pretty solid in the role. Maybe they cast her because she looks like Gladys Heldman. I didn't look that up. But I think maybe the bigger issue than the gambling or actually getting the money or anything else is the attention. And he sure got it from this because when they have the big match in the Houston Astrodome, which it looks like it's full, mm-hmm. but a lot of people in there for a tennis match don't take up that much of the field to do it, they got a big primetime audience in ABC, Howard Coso, Howard Coso. They gave an audience number too. Was it 19 million or 90? And they say it in the movie. I'm not talking about in reality. It says 90 million here on Wikipedia. Okay, there you go. So yeah, it was a huge event, certainly. You might be right. I think that's a good point and a good aspect to remember about Bobby Riggs. But again... I wish they'd given me a better sense of Bobby Riggs in his prime and what he experienced so that I can understand this craving after the fact, cut out a lot of that other stuff around his family and give me more understanding of Bobby Riggs, the attention hog, the jerk, because that's the other thing, right? He has this on again, off again thing with one of his sons anyway. Mm-hmm where the son just ditches him at the end. Well, what the heck was the point of any of that? And the son actually watches. It's not like he's disconnected from exactly. actually what's going on. He does watch. Why did he join him to begin with if he didn't like his father's behavior that much? And then if he does join his cause, he stuck with him through all of the messing around during the training until the day of, then you bail. Rocky and- Jr. stayed with Rocky in yeah. Rocky Balboa at the very end. And then we see, like you said, a shot of the son watching the match in his room. What was the point of any of that? Could have had a better view if you're about 20 feet away from the court. Yeah, take away all of that stuff to Take away all the stuff with him messing about with Bobby Jr., the young kid, and being the good, lighthearted dad, because I don't need this character to be a human being. I need this guy to be somebody I root against. I need him to be a bit of a selfish jerk, a glory hog. And I think it's a better movie. It's a better antagonist role, ultimately. Maybe Carell power played and said he's got to be more human. It could well be. I just but think- even in the obnoxious stuff, he's still human-esque. He's not like he's a complete monster. Yeah. You can tell, and she even acknowledges at one point that he's just being a clown. Yes. I think she says he is a clown, but I think the better line would be he's being a clown. Yes. I think she seems to recognize, and if what I read is true, that she became friends with the guy, that he's putting on an act. So here's the nutshell for this movie, by the way. This is what you get of Michael Scott was transported back to 1973 and started acting like Andy Kaufman with a gambling addiction. That's accurate. Because gambling is his addiction, we know that, but he's also acting so much like Andy Kaufman did with women wrestlers in Memphis and then his big feud with Jerry Lawler. And as we learned as the years went on, that was entirely Andy Kaufman playing a character. He and Lawler pretended they hated each other. People thought they really did. And it was all just a show. Bobby Riggs is putting on a show. He probably does have some issues with women. I don't think he was completely for women and it was all an act, but a lot of it was an act. It was certainly amplified. He was like a wrestling character. It's funny because I was watching this movie last night and I was about 20 minutes from the end of it and Allison came home and so she sat down and watched the end of it 
at that point, I was pretty livid because I could see this is the match now, right? And I can see where the movie's trying to make Did it. you know who won, by the way, going in? Yeah, I did. Okay, right. I am aware of the history of this match okay, and, right. and, and its significance, and that's part of the reason why I feel so much antipathy towards this movie and the way it handled it, I think. But I'm talking to her about it, and she didn't see any of the stuff leading up to the match. She only saw the match. And so she's trying to justify elements of this, as I'm saying, what do they want me to feel about Bobby Riggs? He's this humanized dad, and now he's the chauvinist pig. And, well, they're trying to humanize him, but why? We're supposed to root for Billie Jean King, not this guy. And also, he comes back in the match after getting whipped early on, and then they even say, the fans are starting to get behind. I'm not doing a very good Cosell. <laughs> Bobby, now. But then, of course, she rallies again, and she beats him in straight sets, too. She yeah. beats him 6-4, 6-3, 6-3, after he had beaten Margaret Court 6-2, 6-1. So yeah. Margaret Court, who was number one when he played her, wasn't even close. And then when he plays Billie Jean, who may have been number one, but in any case, she was a top player, maybe not the top player. Yes. She whips him. Why well, didn't realize it was the same year? Yeah, May 13th for the Court Riggs battle, and then September 20th for the BJ versus B battle. Oh, and there's also on Wikipedia here, you see that you got Martina Navratilova played Jimmy Connors in 1992, and he won a straight set. It's only two, though, 7 5, 6 2. So the women won one out of three of these matches. But then again, the Connors Navratilova thing is close ish, especially in the first set. I think we've probably bludgeoned the Bobby Riggs element of the movie into the ground at this point. But aside from understanding better his tennis bona fides so that I could feel a little bit more tension about even a 55-year-old Bobby Riggs. He'd retired, by the way, in 1959, so 13 or 14 years before the movie's set. Not the whole movie, but that match is set, and yeah. about 11 years before the movie starts, which is 1970. He was playing professional tennis at the top of his career in mm -hmm. the 30s and 40s. Well, he's way past his prime. Way this isn't three years. This is way past his prime. They do casually, offhandedly, while introducing him in that match, say, Hall of Fame inductee Bobby Riggs, but you don't really understand that this guy was legitimately a great tennis pro. We just don't get a real good sense of that. Even more importantly to me, I never really got a great sense of how good Billie Jean King was mm -hmm. within the realm of women's tennis because she was spectacular, like just unbelievable talent. And the fact that we get plopped into this movie mid-career, I think she turned pro in the late 50s herself. So she Oh, was, really? Uh, she was 29, Yeah, I think, when this came out. So that makes sense. Tennis players often turn pro in their teens, their teens. especially since we've been alive. In yeah. fact, the Carell Stone age difference is about commensurate with the King Riggs age difference. And then also, Carell played Emma Stone's father in Crazy Stupid Love not long before this, <laughs> where he That's was about funny. probably the same age difference. Aside from understanding better Bobby Riggs, I wish I'd understood better, from many different perspectives, Billie Jean King. I wanted more understanding of what female tennis players had experienced prior to them just shedding the U.S., whatever is Lawn Tennis Association, yes. and forming their own guild, because we jump right into them, severing themselves from it. And I get that they say, well, this tournament is going to be twelve grand top prize for the men, 1500 for the women, and then we have the whole scene of Billie Jean King talking to Jack about, well, do men get eight times the draw as women do? No, we should be paid commensurately. Agreed, absolutely. But give me a little bit better understanding about how poorly they had been treated so that I feel more strongly about them separating. I think they would say that they did that in this movie by doing it in shorthand. Ironically, Bev and I released Dr. Sleep on Monday. We think that Dan Torrance could have been established as an alcoholic with a scene in AA. And we don't need so much of a setup. That movie is too long as it is. And we both thought that when the movie was over. It's been established. He's an alcoholic. This movie's doing that. But you don't like that. You don't like that it's basically saying in one or maybe two scenes that the women have been crapped on and they want to do their own thing. That's why they break off. And Gladys, with her cigarette sponsorship, is one reason why they can do that. 
So I'm actually for that. I was for it in Dr. Sleep, which didn't even occur because we wish it had. And I'm for it here too. But you think you needed more of a backstory, which would make this movie longer and then oh, torture well. you even more. It's not give me more of this thing. It's give me more of this thing in lieu of this other thing. So I want a lot less of Bobby Riggs's personal life. I want a lot less of the relationship with Billie Jean King and her hairdresser, lover, whatever. And give me a little bit more backstory for Bobby Riggs. Give me more backstory, a lot more backstory, ideally, or a lot more insight into Billie Jean King. Give me a little bit of a better sense of what women experienced before the WTA, because we spend a lot of time with them on the WTA. So we understand what their professional life turned into. The right? new thing, yes. The right. new thing. Margaret Court is living out of a hotel room with her husband and her baby. But is that a harsher experience for her now? Is she suffering for the cause? I think she probably is. She probably is. But what was her life like before that? Was she doing exactly the same thing? Was she living a slightly cushier life, but she's willing to suffer this because it's an important cause and will lead to a brighter future for all women if she does? I think Dayton and Ferris would suggest that's what they're putting on the screen in shorthand. That's probably the reality, but I don't see it. I don't know how much money Billie Jean King made ever. They never say once how much money she made in a single tournament. They say Not, how much she stood to make potentially yeah, in one turn. should have made, yeah. Right. She shows up to a dance with her husband. Sarah Silverman's character shows up with a press release. They are furious. This is the last straw that leads to them forming the WTA, is the difference in pay between men and women. This is so out of the ordinary that they just stormed out and barged in on this guy. So does that mean that this pay difference was out of the ordinary, that normally women would be paid more, but they're being paid less for this tournament, and that's why they're so furious? Or is this just more of the same and it's the last straw? I have no bloody idea. I don't know what any of this means. This is a one-off circumstance. It doesn't establish a pattern. I know what the movie wants me to know. I just feel like it was done a disservice. But even that aside, Billie Jean King herself. And this, to me, was the most egregious flaw. Am I meant to like Billie Jean King? Yeah. Why? You're meant to. Okay, well, so of course you're meant to. You're meant to like Bobby Riggs, too, but just less. So we meet Billie Jean King. She's a tennis champion. We're shown that immediately. She then storms in on Jack. This is outrageous. Forming my own league. Great. Fine. We meet her husband. Nicest dude on the planet. Ryan, the other drummer, by the way, in Whiplash. The guy that's brought in as motivation for Great the main hair, character. too. Yeah. Fantastic. I man. think he does a pretty good job, actually, of playing the disappointment of finding out. And maybe they lay that on a little thick and take too long to make the point that he sees, there's a bra in here. That's not my wife's bra. And <laughs> yeah. Maybe dwelled on a little bit. But I think that Austin Stowell does a pretty solid job of he showing really the realization what's going on, but not freaking out. And then at the end of the movie, he has some kind of acceptance of Marilyn being in Billie Jean's life, which he realizes will happen. And then, of course, what actually happened in reality is Billie Jean married somebody else. I think her name's Alana. Yeah, yeah, it wasn't Marilyn. That's a real person. I don't think that's a composite character. Maybe it is, but Alana is a real person who Billie Jean, according to the Marin podcast, is still with even to this day. Yeah. And she and Larry King is his name, by the way. Not the Larry King. No, though. but it's a different totally, Larry King. Yeah. Not the suspenders guy. But Larry King and she maintained their relationship, closeness, what have you. They didn't have kids together, I don't... Th no, they didn't have kids together because he would have been bringing the kid with him if they did. But he has kids with somebody else, and I think she does too, and I believe they're both godparents of each other's kids. She mentioned that on the podcast with Marin. 
that she's that close with him that I believe it's at least she's a godparent of his kids. So they maintain the relationship. And in the movie, it's portrayed that he's pretty accepting. He's a little bit maybe too much in this 30s style of, well, you love this other guy we've been watching for an hour and a half and you're supposed to marry me. Bev and I have talked about this in a few of the old movies we've covered where it's, <laughs> you like him? Fine, I'm out. I'm yeah. fully supporting this. You could argue he does that, but I think that Stowell and the directors and everybody do a pretty good job of portraying that this guy understands what's going on. He loves Billy Jean. Maybe there should have been a big confrontation about that, but I think it's done okay, at least. You put that very well. It's not a comparison I would have thought of, but it's very apt. We, the audience, like that person, so I like that person as a character, even though I have no real reason to. The reason I struggled to like Billie Jean King as a character in this movie is because I felt like they didn't give me a lot of reason to. Aside from the righteous cause for which she is fighting, which is great, but she's not alone in that, right? She's just the figurehead of it as far as this mm -hmm. movie is concerned. We meet this guy who just seems like the nicest dude in the world. And then almost immediately she starts cheating on him. She does cheat. That's true. We can't forget that. Just immediately. 10 minutes into the movie and she's having a haircut with this person. And then the next thing is they're in a hotel room making out together. It seems impossible, by the way, that this is the first time she's ever done anything like that before. But the movie portrays that she's been awakened in that haircut scene, which is very erotic. This is yeah. a very scorable movie. It's one of the more scorable movies we've ever had. In addition to Elizabeth Shue looking outstanding as she always did and still does... And the scenes with Billie Jean King and Marilyn Barnett, oh, Andrea Riseborough, are pretty erotic. That haircut yes. scene, and if you think about it, I have a dude that cuts my hair. I don't think of it at the time with him, but cutting somebody's hair, this was done in some Tom Selleck movie. What was that? Her alibi, maybe? Can be a very erotic thing, and in this movie, it certainly is. It's true. You're not wrong. This is not me slagging on the relationship either. Incidentally, that's not my intention either. It's but just, this wouldn't be her first time ever doing anything like this, well, probably in her late 20s, meaning Billie Jean King. Probably not. But even if it is, that's cool too. But again, from a movie production standpoint, give me a reason to like this character. Who's before, now cheating on Before her she immediately cheats on the husband. Yeah, okay. And then when the husband finds out, and I actually kind of did like the way that actor portrayed that, by the way, I agree with you. I thought it was a very gut-wrenching performance very few words too very few words it was just a really good physical performance and i understand that moment he walks out he gets his own hotel room he gives an excuse as to why but no the writing's on the wall but really at no point in that movie do we ever get a scene where billy jean king says anything to her husband about this relationship that has continued after this incidentally and we don't need a huge blow-up scene. We don't need a huge monologue. Or maybe a conversation. Maybe a brief conversation or even like a single I'm sorry so that we get a sense that she is somehow conflicted about what she's feeling here. Because we get a lot of hanging of the head of Emma Stone and things like that. But it's still hard to feel bad for her because her husband is doing everything for her and her career even while he knows she's cheating on him while she's on tour. And then at the end of the movie, of course, it's the husband that says to her, whatever you need whoever you need just tell me and i'll get her and then ultimately they do get her and marilyn shows up and all is well for billy jean king incidentally alan cumming was one of the better parts of this movie he's too. very good yeah when he says to billy jean king someday we'll be allowed he predicts gay marriage will be legal but yeah. 40 years later finally it is legal great sentiment again i liked his portrayal i liked his character good sentiment but it felt out of place in this movie because it's totally a tangential story arc to what we're meant to be feeling which is the man versus woman battle of the sexes it's not is homosexuality in america in the 70s a thing we should be for against should athletes be subjected to this kind of scrutiny about it that's not part of this movie well it is but 
maybe you don't think it should be. A lot of movies have tackled multiple issues and pulled it off better than this did. I'll give you that. If they had managed to pull off both, I would give it a pass. It just felt like this movie wasn't capable of it. And I understand this is part of who Billie Jean King is, so you can't just totally skirt around it. I appreciate that too. But so much screen time was dedicated to Marilyn and Billie Jean, and ultimately it paid off very little. Andrea Riseborough was third build here on the IMDb, yeah. so obviously she's a major character in their eyes, too. She, by the way, was in Birdman with Emma Stone. Was she in A couple years before this, Emma Stone, of course, plays Michael Keaton's daughter, and I think Riseborough plays a love interest of Keaton. Oh, I don't I think that could be, but that was before this movie, of course. Yeah. And then Riseborough went on to be Mandy in Mandy. The Nicolas Cage weirdo psychedelic film horror in many ways. One of those weird films, hard to really pin down what it is. David Lynch probably loved it. <laughs> Recommend Mandy, but she is Mandy. Every key role in that, that's but that's certainly a Cage film. Just like Natalie Morales is so key in this as Rosie Cassells. And of course, this is something that has to be real because they show the real guy. They just put Natalie Morales' face, I'm guessing, on the real Rosie when he's getting a little handsy. And he's just putting his hand on her shoulder. When they show Cosell and her talking at the oh, end. when she's doing commentary? When they're on camera. Right, right, right. It's not the end of the world that he puts his hand on her a little. Bob Barker with Price is Right. I don't know that. Okay, Bob Barker probably did grope people. I'm not trying to excuse that. <laughs> Very Richard Dawson-y. Well, no, but his thing was more that he would put his arm around them. I think to keep them close for the camera shot. I watched a lot of Price is Right. I feel like he did that with guys, too. I could be wrong. And maybe Cosell did the same kind of thing. I think he did. With other right. people, but he wouldn't put his arm around the person's shoulder. The point is, I'm sure the idea from Dayton and Ferris is, let's just show the Cosells being handsy and condescending, as he was in their commentary. Unless they got a sound alike to do the Howard Cosell stuff, it's really him talking. And he isn't as bad as Jack Kramer, but he is pretty condescending towards women in this. Kramer, when he has that big confrontation, well, that's pretty low-key, but a confrontation with Billie Jean towards the end, is extremely condescending. But Howard Cosell on the air, with 90 million people watching, is pretty condescending to women's tennis, and Rosie pushes back a fair amount. I don't know if the real Rosie did that, but Natalie Morales in this film sure did. I don't know if that was a shot-for-shot pull-from-real-footage thing with Cosell. I think it had to be, and they just digitally put her face on the sense, real Rosie. Right? Yeah. yeah. It's not like you see him grabbing her ass, but he's doing something that doesn't seem all that professional. Okay, we're looking at this in 2021, and people get so worked up about even just saying, hey, I think she's pretty. I've said that a lot of podcasts with you and with Bev, and I'm sure a lot of people will listen to this, well, not a lot, but some probably think, well, you're judging her for her looks. It's a movie, man, or woman. This is reality. This is why these people even have these jobs sometimes. I don't think there's anything wrong pointing out you find somebody attractive or not, as long as you're not saying that's the only redeeming right. quality that person yes. has. I think, if nothing else, we do make a point of pointing out some of the male heartthrobs. We have many times. Many times. and it's one of Austin Stoll is the best-looking person in this movie, probably. <laughs> Absolutely. And one of the reasons I have so much respect for a guy like Brad Pitt, that is a guy that unquestionably got into Hollywood because he was just one of the prettiest guys you'll ever see mm -hmm. in a heartthrob of a man. But became more than that. So much more than that. With respect to a movie like this, in fact, one of the other reasons, particularly modern day, Brad Pitt being one of the biggest stars in our recent memory anyway, that is a guy that will take roles in movies and not dominate the movie, right? He mm -hmm. will take small roles. Snatch, it was a small-ish role, but it was still one of the more memorable roles. But mm -hmm. in other circumstances, he has very small pop-ups. And scenes. not coast on his looks. You talked about earlier, maybe this was an instance where... I doubt it was Carell himself, but maybe the studio said, listen, we need to have X amount of screen time for the male lead in this. Whereas I could see a situation where Brad Pitt takes the movie and says, listen, I don't need to be in it a whole heck of a lot. I'll do what I need to do. Don't worry about it. Let Emma take the movie kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Cause that just seems to be a thing he does. And 
I have more respect for him than ever because of that. There's very few leading men or women, I think, that actually do that with any regularity. So that's a little bit of a tangent away from the good looks commentary. But like I said, I feel like there's nothing wrong with that. Just be as equal about the comments across the board as we can. But Mm -hmm. I think we do that. When you do sports movies, you're going to have plenty of films where there are very few women in it. So all you really have to look at are guys. Okay, well, let's get back to the actual tennis action, which I think is pretty well done. But I have two big questions. One is... I'll set it up by saying this, then I'll get to the questions. John McEnroe once said, I forget when this was, but I feel like it was in the last 20 years at least, that the number 100 guy could be number one woman. It was like a Bobby Riggs level of... Yes. Okay. I am retired and in my mid-50s, 55 years old, I believe he was, in 73. And here is somebody at the top of her game. If she's not number one, she's close to it. And he did play number one before that in Margaret Court. And he beat her easily. And then, of course, he thinks he can beat Billie Jean easily. Mm. So that's the John McEnroe mentality. So my question is, what about Serena? You know what's funny? I'm watching this movie, and that came to mind too. Serena Williams in her prime versus, I don't even know who the number one tennis player in the world, male tennis player in the world, would have been, say, 10 years Let's say Federer, because it's around the same time that she was at the top of her game as when he was at the top of his game. I feel like that would have been a hell of a match to see. He probably wins, because he's so overpowering with the serve. He aces guys constantly, so he's probably going to ace her constantly. But when she has the serve... She has a chance to do the same thing to him. She is, if not the greatest female tennis player of all time, she's certainly on the short list. And that's one thing, too, I'll yes. say about the depiction of the sport. I think it's pretty good. But if this was the best the real people could do, <laughs> modern players With would destroy fortune. either of them, especially the women, because Serena or now the Canadian player, what's her name, Andrescu. Yeah, she's Bianca. a pretty talented, young, powerful one. Let's not forget Venus Williams, of course, too. Steffi Graf, one of my favorite players of all time. The power, the talent. Martina Navratilova came around the same time frame as this. So she's probably commensurate to Billie Jean King's talent level and strength and everything. But Serena Williams, and Venus Williams for that matter, would probably annihilate these people. Now, then again, you got to go by the whole logic of if the people in the 70s and late 60s, I guess, had the same nutrition and the same equipment, the same training, the same money put into it, could they be as good as them? Maybe. But I'm of the opinion that you take the modern athlete, they just have so much more opportunity and money and knowledge that the people from the 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s had in any sport, that if you could just magically transport one to the other, either back to the past or to the future, Marty, that I think generally the modern athlete, they may not have better numbers. They may not win everything in whatever sport we're talking about, but just pure athleticism, probably better. Especially when you talk about Joe Average on these teams, if we're talking about, say, baseball or football versus maybe the top players. Randall Grichik on the Blue Jays, for instance. is probably a better athlete than the third best Giants player. But could Willie Mays be the superstar on the Blue Jays? Yeah, probably probably still, exactly. But could the third or fourth best player on the Giants be that now? I don't know. Probably not. So Serena Williams, you seem to agree with me. If she was back in this time frame in the 70s, Billie Jean King would have no chance against her. Neither would Bobby Riggs, even in his prime, probably. Oh, 100% agree with that. Yeah, it's unquestioned. And I think this movie pokes a little bit of fun at that, right? When we get the scene with... um, Fred Armisen, being the quack nutritionist. PEDs. Yeah, his PEDs, effectively, but they're, quote-unquote, amino acids and special stuff or Mm -hmm. whatever. The scenes in this movie are fine, but it does look more like two very good recreational players playing tennis versus two top pros in the world playing tennis because there's not a lot of power to it. There's... A lot of lobs, and it's constantly where somebody gets put back in the backcourt and has to just get a ball as a desperation shot, and then it happens with her, especially towards the middle to the end of the match, where he's basically just lobbed a ball up and she just smashes it on him. Yeah. If you play like that, oh my God, the modern players, especially Serena Williams or Federer, would annihilate you. It wouldn't be 6'3", 6'2", that kind of thing. It'd be 6'love. 
Yeah, absolutely. So the portrayal's good. It's good enough. It's fine. There's no question that modern athletes are worlds ahead. Just physically. Doesn't physically. mean they're better players. Doesn't mean their numbers are better. But physically, well, probably so. I think in some sports, at least. A sport like baseball, you can get away with less physicality just by virtue of the way the game is played. Mm-hmm. Tennis, hockey, football, games like that rely so much more on raw strength, endurance, physicality. They're in better shape, too. And that's one thing that yes. happens with Bobby in this. He just gets tired. He's gassed. So I could see just the improvements in conditioning, nutrition, whatever, just making them better players because of that just raw physical element to the game. doesn't mean they're more naturally gifted. It's just they've had those opportunities afforded to them. But you asked the question about Serena Williams, and I was thinking about that too. And I think probably a guy like Federer in his prime beats Serena Williams, but I don't think it's a guarantee. And if you were to go down the list of top 100 male tennis players in, say, 2010, for instance, when the Williams sisters were, I think, still pretty much at their peak, there's no chance that they beat Serena Williams. Of course not. She's just too good. She's too strong. That's what Billie Jean King is talking about. That's what she wants. Equal opportunity for anybody, whether it be a woman or gay, or whatever it is that they are. She just wants all these people to have the chance, the same level mm-hmm. playing field as anybody else. And also, let's not forget, black women, the chance to be great players, look how good they can be. There's a few pretty interesting questions that a movie like this should raise. I was hoping it would. Part of my disappointment in it is that I don't think it really did, in the modern sense of it, because they're still relevant today, regardless of when this match actually happened. Things like our expectations of these athletes, right? So are we watching this from a purely entertainment perspective? Because early on, that is really the argument that Billie Jean King is making, and I think rightfully so. It's about time you hear that. You hear that more often. I know he's broken now for everybody. He probably should be. But Trevor Bauer on his YouTube channel was talking about that a lot lately with the whole friend or Tatis thing. Yeah. He was entertaining. He beat me. He did the eye thing I did in spring training. Good for him. Good for the game. Because it's entertainment. I've rarely ever heard a professional athlete in my life say it's entertainment. Because it is. You guys are making tens of millions of dollars because people want to watch you do this. Not just because they want to watch you win or lose, but because they want to be entertained. That's right. And I think we're going to hear more and more of that as traditional sports struggle to maintain viewership in the face of things like esports in younger generations. Because that's what it is. We should be entertained by this. Not necessarily with respect to the Bobby Riggs, Billie Jean King match specifically, but ultimately, does it even matter whether Man X could beat Woman Y or vice versa? Because that's not why we watch sports. We don't need a man to beat a woman or a woman to beat a man. We need men and women alone or together to be playing sports at a high and entertaining level so that we can watch it and be entertained and pay money to do so. And that's the argument that Billie Jean King has made throughout the movie. Are women eight times less a draw than men? Is that why you're paying? Hell no. And the answer to that is, of course, no. It doesn't really matter if they're on exactly equal playing fields, because that's not the point anyway. I think the more interesting question, at least in 2021, as our view of gender evolves because it's not as binary as it once was and it's not a question anymore anyway as far as do women have a place in sport i think we've all just at this point finally accepted not to the degree we should yet because the pay disparity is still there but it's coming along that yes there's of course a place for women in all sport but then what do we do about the concept of fluid or changing gender identities? And this is a question that right. I struggle with a lot, especially as it becomes more and more... It's not per- simple. It's not. In international sport in particular, it's becoming more and more of an issue. I pray that I don't say anything stupid because my intention is in no way, shape, or form to be 
disparaging to anybody. He's doing his best, people. I'm He's trying, trying his I'm best. Trying. So if any woman at any point chooses to try to pursue a career and break into men's sport, you're fighting an uphill battle, but I say go for but it. But if you're good enough, you have If a you're team. Good, good enough. I don't feel the same way about men and women's sport, and here's why. It's simply biological, right? This has nothing to do with natural talent, capability, or right to do anything. It's simple biology that men, as far as body proportions, have less inherent body fat, more muscle versus your average woman that's going to have more body fat muscle. It's just the way we evolved. And there's plenty of women out there and saying that that could break me over their knee in a heartbeat. We know one. And she's all of five foot two and she could still be. It doesn't look like she could, but we know she'd wreck us in a second, especially me. It's so hard to talk about without sounding disparaging. But it just feels like you are starting from a disadvantage as a woman trying to break into men's sport. Whereas if you're a man of equal ability and equal opportunity to train and work out and stuff like that, you're going to come at any women's sport from a point of advantage. At least if it's a sport that relies on raw muscle strength and physicality, like hockey, for instance, where endurance, lower body strength really plays a role. Football too. And this is becoming even more of an issue when you start talking about people that have transitioned gender. Where are the rights there? I don't pretend to have an answer. These are like very real questions in sport in 2021, and they're kind of raised inadvertently when you just talk about a match like this, which is the literal battle of the sexes. So I don't know. There's a lot of interesting evolution in sport going on now, and I'm sure there's going to be a lot of really uncomfortable debates going on about this kind of stuff at all sport levels going forward. There will be a sports movie that gets released one of these days. Maybe there's been one. I can't think of one off the top of my head that we will cover that gets into this topic. And I guess we can dig more into it then. I agree with you that it's not a simple issue. The Olympics have people that identify as no sex in particular. They want to be called they, that kind of thing. And then a transgender woman was in a weightlifting, I think it was, event. And the woman didn't win it. So then there's less of a controversy. I guess if she'd won the gold medal, they'd say, well, that was actually a guy who won in a woman's sport. But that's all I really want to say about that because it's still, to me, so new and it's not cut and dry. For those who think it is, okay, good. I'm glad things are cut and dry for you. For me, they're not. No, not at all. But I will say what I know we've both said many times before. Whenever this issue has come up in any sort of way with our podcast, I want to see the best team on the field. And if a woman is the best baseball pitcher or the best running back in football or a tennis player or whatever the sport is, let her have at it. And maybe we'll get to that point one day. We're just now getting women GMs and women trainers and women coaches in some of the big sports. That is so much less forgivable, obviously, because Mm. there's no excuse to be made, even in a sport like football, where you can say, well, listen, we haven't had a lot of female players because if you're not 300 pounds and six foot six, you're not going to be playing on an offensive or defensive line. But they can't be the GM. Exactly. They can't be on the sidelines. And I guess the excuse then goes to, well, there's been so many fewer women involved in the sport historically that you kind of have to build up the knowledge. I don't know. Even the trainer thing, they'd say, well, women's going to touch me. Whenever I've gone to the doctor, the checkups, that kind of stuff in my life, it's been way more often that women have touched me, and I didn't think about it at all. It wasn't a turn-on. And if it is to you, then maybe you need to look at yourself in the mirror that, that it is. <laughs> or know. conversely, if a guy ever saw me naked in a doctor's table, that kind of thing, it's a doctor. <laughs> or in this case, a trainer. They're a medical professional. Get over yourself. Yeah, and very few people know that we strip down naked to record this podcast. It's just part of the ritual of it all. At least three to four times. Not every time. Because we do some of these in the winter and it gets a little too cold. Although soon we'll be recording in a new house and maybe it'll be really warm in there. Or it's really cold. We don't know yet. During the winter, I do leave my winter coat on. I take my pants off. Yeah, you're bottomless always. I'm bottomless 100% yeah. of the time. But I leave my coat on for that very reason. You wear your shorts to come here and then take them off when you walk in the house. Yeah, that's, that's true. very nice. Okay, one last thing I want to bring up. 
is the Rocky three comparison because this movie is very much a super hyped kind of thing with the big match built up by Bobby Riggs. He's absolutely Apollo Creed trying to build up the Clubber Lang. It can be bigger than ours versus Rocky match as okay. Clubber says. And even Rocky not taking the first fight against Clubber seriously and then getting his ass handed to him after Mick does. Well, in this one, of course, Bobby doesn't take his training seriously. And that's part of the reason why he loses to Billy Jean. A Bobby at even 55, training his hardest, does he beat Billie Jean? Maybe, but he didn't take it seriously, so he had no chance because he's wiped out. And the whole taking the jacket off thing is the big moment. I'm actually surprised they didn't go with the big music cue to say, oh no, now he's taking it seriously, because this movie is filled with, I guess they call it now, needle drops. And I recently saw Cruella, which Emma Stone is in, of course, and also You and I with The Waterboy, because that's always with Sandler. Needle drops galore, and in this case, also in Cruella, because that's set in the 70s, so many overused 70s songs. Really good tunes in many cases, but God, have we heard them in a lot of movies, and this movie also relies a little bit too much on the needle drop situation with 70s classics. Honestly, I didn't notice the music at all, which is weird, because usually I dig a 1970s soundtrack, even if it features some overplayed classics, but yeah, this time it didn't really appeal to me. I think I saw Cruella the night before this, and that's probably why, oh, so because I'm watching in. the same star, two straight days, both on Disney+. Plus, Both in the same era. Right, roughly. set in the same time frame with so many needle drops. Yeah. I get the Rocky Three comparison. I hadn't really considered it from that perspective. Mostly for the hype. And the fact that Rocky loses because yeah. he's not taking it seriously, and Bobby does. The first match for Rocky, and Bobby in this big match. If he took it seriously, maybe he beats her. To complete my series of gripes against this movie, maybe the last thing that I wish they had spent more energy in imparting to me was how big is this match within the social consciousness of the country? Because we spend a lot of time with the female tennis player, Cadre. We understand what mm-hmm. it means to them. They do a pretty good job, all of them. They're basically just a big clump of women, but they do a solid job. Yeah. This is also around the time of Roe v. Wade becoming a law. It's a huge moment in America for this kind of gender equality push. Obviously, in 2021, we're still not there, so we're still working on it. But this is a big time in this effort, which is why... I felt like by the time we got to the match and that hype up, I understood what it meant internally to these people. I didn't really get a sense of how big it was globally, nationwide, until somebody said, oh, well, we're going to have 90 million people watching this. Well, that feels like a very lazy way to impart the importance of this match to the nation on us. It's just offhandedly say 90 million people. And I know there's also a scene where they're reading Billie Jean King, some letters from people that are presumably girls that are fans and watching mm-hmm. the match. This movie would probably argue, well, they're doing that, but they're doing it in shorthand, Mm -hmm. and they're doing it in shorthand, and they're doing it in shorthand. And I feel like if you want to summarize my gripes with this movie in a whole, it felt like it was doing everything in shorthand. (laughs) Despite being a full two hours. Yeah, it's two hours long. And with graphics at the end to explain as well where things went, that she got, I think, the Presidential Medal of Freedom and all these other honors, and she got to live her life normally as she should have all along. If she was a lesbian, she should have been able to be a lesbian all this time. Alan Cummings, you called it. 40-odd years later, you I mean, called He it. didn't get to be out as a gay man because he was supposed to be middle-aged. If this character is really that age, I don't yes. know. But he probably didn't have too many years before he was dead, before he could actually... Maybe he never got to marry the person he wanted to be with. If he did, I don't know. But he could also be a complete composite because he's not supposed to be a real person, I don't think. Some of these people oh, are, could but be, not yeah. all of them are. As far as the score, well, obviously you wouldn't agree, but I did basically enjoy it. I'd say a very soft seven, maybe 6.5 out of 10. You're probably more like three. Yeah. That low. Three out of 10. Okay. Mostly, I think, for wasted potential by the sounds of it, because Emma Stone is fine in this. When I say Cruella, didn't love her in that role, but I didn't love the trailer, and I liked her more in the role. 
she's not my favorite actress of all time. I think she does a pretty good job in movies, but she's one of those people that, much like this film for you, is more like good but not great. And I think Carell actually yeah. is surprisingly great in dramatic type roles, although he's a goof in this, but he's still a dramatic actor a lot of the time since Foxcatcher, where he was nominated for an Oscar, in a deadly, serious, almost scary role. And he also, Bobby does, get his wife back when he loses because she walks in and the suggestion yeah. is, we're back together because it does say, again, with the graphic at the end, they made it work. All right, fine. I don't care. And he didn't stop nothing. gambling. He even says he didn't stop gambling. So why did she accept it? Because she wasn't going to accept that part of him. She loved him. Right? Yeah, okay. Why was any of that whole that thing? That was not good. Yeah. It felt like a movie that could have narrowed its scope a little bit. And yes, movies can successfully attack more than one issue at once this one felt like it was trying to touch on at least four or five or six different issues within the lives of these people. I'm thinking of Seabiscuit, by the way. We covered that a couple of years ago. That's a movie yeah. that tries to get the whole country's wrapped up in this horse race, and they probably were. Yeah. But that movie makes it extremely clear that's what's happening. I think that's a good comparison, and honestly, I don't remember how I felt about that element of Seabiscuit specifically. We said that tried to tear off more than it could actually chew. I'd say the same thing about this one, too. Focus a little bit more, and I would have liked it a lot more. There are so many solid to good to sometimes great actors in various roles throughout this movie, and so few of them are given much to do. There's a lot of that guy kind of actors, mm -hmm. and the one that was my favorite, I don't know if this was in any way intentional by the casting department, probably not, but I loved it nonetheless. One of the buddies of Bobby Riggs that's cheering him on. John C. McGinley? No, which was also great. No, one of those other in that group, the guy with the mustache and the hat, is the guy that plays Milos, the tennis pro in Seinfeld. Another oh, really? game for Milos! I recognize him. Oh, wow. So I'm like, ah, oh, you made it back to That's got to be deliberate. He's a character actor that pops up periodically over the last 25 years or so since that episode of Seinfeld. But this is the first time I've seen him in a tennis-related movie. Okay. So I was like, oh, Milos. So it makes perfect sense then. That alone got this movie another one point for me on the out of 10 scale. Well, I liked it more than you did, but I wouldn't defend it too hard because it does feel like a wasted opportunity to be a really good movie, a great movie, rather than yeah. it's solid and fine. I looked back at my old records. I gave it a two and a half out of four stars back oh, in the day. So that's say about two and a half six. out of ten for a second there. No, out of four. So I gave it about a six then. I guess you could put it in those numbers. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, well, in two weeks, we'll get back on the diamond for the first time in many months as we peruse Billy Crystal's 20-year-old TV movie, our first TV movie, 61 Asterisk. I guess that's part of technically the title. Asterisk. It never got a theatrical release. No, or? HBO. Oh, should have right, been yeah. released, just like RKO 281 a couple years before it. The Citizen Kane movie yeah. should have got a theatrical release, but didn't. Hmm. So you can find us on Twitter. I'm at MovieFiend51. Chris is at Scoring at Movies. The email address is Scoring at the Movies at gmail.com. Please send us some messages. Subscribe. Rate us. That helps drive business to the show and maybe make us a little bigger than we are now. Because everybody can use publicity. Who couldn't use publicity? We crave that spotlight like Bobby Riggs. We do. Give it to us. And I am not that far away from his age. I'm about 12 years younger. No, eight years younger. My math is bad yet again. So stop underestimating people, dudes. And let people live the life they want to live. The Clint Eastwood approach. He was quoted as saying that about gay marriage. What do I care? Let people live their life. Oh, good for him. Hopefully he still feels that way. He used to. Mm -hmm. Take her easy. <laughs>